Welcome to Malicious Life, in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ran Levy. How does somebody end up becoming a hacker? Nikita Kuzmin certainly didn't have to become one. He was a good-looking young guy. Short blonde hair, bright blue eyes, his skin was pale, a little pimply, sharp features with stubble growing along his sideburns. For someone his age, he was quite enterprising. He drove around on an old banged-up motorized bike he originally found one day lying on the edge of the road after it'd been crashed and ditched by its owner. He often thought of replacing that dinky bike with a fancy car, but it got him around for most of his teen years. In another life, Nikita could have been any number of things. With his skill set, he could have been a highly sought-after cybersecurity expert, a whiz programmer, or maybe even the CEO of a tech company. Because he was brilliant. Early on, as a young teenager, Nikita's coding skills were admired by older peers. That, perhaps, was not a good thing. Without the role models in his life that could have guided him in honing those skills towards building things or getting a job, maybe, he instead became an active member of Shadow Crew, a web forum for cybercriminal activity. During the early 2000s, ShadowCrew.com was the center of the hacking universe. The stories and the people that were born out of that forum Brett Shannon Johnson, Albert Gonzalez, Alexei Korolov, and others will be subjects of many malicious life episodes to come. Nikita worked alongside many of the most famous and respected cyber criminals of his time as he honed his skills coding spyware and remote access Trojans. It was in this environment that the young teenager grew up and learned how to think. According to a researcher who studied him closely, a researcher who will become very important to this story very soon, Nikita was known in Shadow Crew not just for his youth and skill, but for, quote, his enthusiasm for the idea that internet fraud, especially against Western targets, was a legitimate profession with better pay and perks than working for local computer and software retail outlets university labs and ISPs, end quote. By his early 20s, he attended two major engineering universities and earned a degree in computer science. If he were living in California, the job offers would have poured in. But Nikita was from Moscow, and the people he was in league with took him down a very different life's path. His second outfit was the Hang-Up team. Hang-Up deemed themselves cyber-fascists, radically left wagers of financial warfare. Among their favorite hobbies was posting imagery with swastikas online. In one example, a shining swastika sits atop a Christmas tree on the White House front lawn. 
more so than a cogent ideology, hang-up were driven by virulent anti-Americanism. According to Malicious Bots, a book by Ken Dunham and Jim Melnick, members often refer to their enemies as quote-unquote eaters of hamburgers. Hang-up's speciality was banking Trojans, malware that take advantage of online banking portals and payment systems. As online banking rose in popularity during the mid-2000s and cybersecurity over its platforms struggled to keep up, Hang-up found great success with bots, exploits of core Windows features, and zero-day vulnerabilities. One of its most resounding successes, Hacksdoor, was an early form-grabbing Trojan. Once downloaded to a target computer via a malicious PDF, it opened the backdoor TCP port and delivered the most sensitive personal information of the target computer's unwitting owner just as soon as they typed it into an online banking site or payment portal. The creator of Hacksdoor went by the name Corpse. Corpse's success had as much to do with the distribution of his malware as it did the malware itself. By the mid-2000s, he was selling a version of Hacksdoor called Nuclear Grabber for over $3,000 a pop on the black market. Now, it's not immediately obvious why he would do this. A successful bank hack can yield orders of magnitude more than $3,000. In one notable instance, Hacksdoor was used to steal 8 million kroner, just under a million US dollars, from the Swedish bank Nordia. Corpse was like a comic book villain who built a death ray, then rented it out to any ordinary criminal with a few thousand bucks in their pockets. Corpse wasn't your typical villain, though. One senses he had a paranoia about him, like he always suspected he was on the verge of being caught. He may have been right. After Hacksdoor's success, Corpse tried to lower his profile. Selling malware, rather than carrying out attacks himself, may have been a way to distance himself from the action. But word got out. Computer World magazine teamed up with an investigator from Symantec to locate and speak with Corpse by pretending to be a buyer for Nuclear Grabber. Corpse confirmed everything the researchers suspected, then gave them more than they bargained for by personally offering to store any stolen data they hacked with his tool on American, Chinese, or European servers for $150 a month. The story was published in January of 2007, and Corpse disappeared. But the legacy of Hacksdoor did not. Don Jackson joined Secure Works as a security researcher in mid-2006. By this time, he'd been working as an analyst for a decade. When a friend of his noticed a strange problem with his computer, Don was called on for a favor. A number of this friend's online accounts had been hijacked, and antivirus checks had identified a certain executable file as a potential source of the problem. The executable wasn't labeled malicious, but it wasn't cleared either. 
At first, the prospect of investigating some anonymous exe file didn't seem terribly interesting to Jackson. He recounted the experience in a long four-part story in CSO magazine back in January of 2007. Generally, he said, the EXE is not all that exciting to researchers who see hundreds of these samples a month. End quote. Still, as a favor to his friend, he downloaded the file to a lab computer. Upon first glance, it seemed just as uninteresting as he'd anticipated. Another banking trojan, another hacksdoor offshoot. It worked much like the other banking trojans of the time. It began infecting new Windows machines via an Internet Explorer 6 exploit. Once arrived, it simply waited. Once the computer's user visited the website which asked for useful data, it would perk up its ears. This was a form-grabbing trojan. When a user typed and submitted their most sensitive personal identifying information into a bank's website, for example, the malware would secretly send a copy of that same information back to a server controlled by the hacker. It's crucial to note that form grabbers don't breach the actual bank sites they target. Instead, they breach an individual's computer and activate when that individual visits something like a bank site. This method has distinct benefits. For one thing, it's much easier to hack a single person than a whole bank. And even if the malware is discovered, individuals lack the resources to counterpunch and investigate their hackers. Ultimately, this Trojan may not have been anything new. In fact, it was anything but new. It mostly mashed together successful features of other past banking trojans with little tweaks, like a greatest hits album of Hacksdoor-era banking malware. But it was effective at stealing information, and not only that, many weeks into being out in the wild, it wasn't identified as malicious by any antivirus vendors. That's because it had built-in features to keep hidden, like taking advantage of SSL. Secure Sockets Lair is a security protocol of the internet that does two things. Verify that the website you're visiting is certified and encrypt traffic over your connection. It's what turns HTTP to HTTPS and adds that little lock icon next to the web domain of the site you're visiting. What this banking trojan did, however, was mask itself as a layered service provider. Essentially, it squeezed in between a browser and SSL, siphoning off data from banking websites before it could be stopped or encrypted by SSL. Infected computers would still display that lock icon beside their bank website domain, even though they were anything but secure. Don Jackson gave this Trojan a name, Pizdato, after a word found in a source code. After learning what Pizdato actually meant, Pizda is Russian slang for vagina, Jackson changed the name to Gozi. After a couple days of analysis, Jackson discovered one more component to Gozi. It connected back to servers hosted in Russia. 
when he poked his head in to see where that connection ended, he was like Dorothy opening the door to a world of color. All that time he'd spent analyzing the malware was just him scratching at the surface of something much, much deeper. Botnets tend to be controlled by a single entity and take mass orders. They're like robot armies, and the hackers that create and maintain them are like army generals. Oftentimes, because of their sheer scale, hackers will use botnets to steal so much data from so many computers that they simply can't handle it all. Ten stolen credit cards is one thing, but what could you possibly do with 50,000 credit card numbers? It's too much work to use each one for fraud, so the data usually ends up sold on the black market. Nikita Kuzmin had a different idea of how to weaponize a botnet. His model was Corpse. Corpse had built the powerful Hexor banking trojan, but there's little evidence that Corpse actually used Hackdoor to carry out successful hacks of his own. Instead, he peddled it to others. In exchange for a few thousand dollars, distance from the criminal activity, and not actually having to do any of the work of hacking a bank account, he promised the kind of malware that could earn a talented hacker a lot more than the few thousand dollars they were being charged. Both he and his customers got something out of the deal, like any good business. Nikita would take that concept and turn it into an enterprise. First, in 2005, he conceived of a banking trojan. He came up with a list of technical specifications he wanted it to meet, then hired freelance hackers to build it. Next, he brought on two business partners. Exoric was a systems administrator based in the United States who, importantly, was of Latino descent and spoke Spanish. He acted as the middleman between Nikita and their Panama-based bulletproof hosting. Alexander Kalninin, who went by the name Greg, was the last member of the trio. The year after Gozi, he would join another group and commit one of the most famous hacks in history. More on that in a future episode of our show. Based out of Russia, his expertise seems to be evading the law, as he escaped jurisdiction in both instances. Together, Greg, Exerich, and Kuzmin, who went by the name 76 online, formed 76 Service, perhaps the oddest and most brilliant malware operation ever conceived to that point in time. And it was being tracked. After tracing the Russian connection, Don Johnson went undercover and dove straight into the criminal underground to find out what was going on behind the strange executable on his friend's computer. Posing as a British cybercriminal under the handle Gozi. Remember, Gozi is the name he gave the malware, not the name it was known by at the time. He began searching darknet forums where stolen credit card information was bought and sold for anybody who seemed to know about Gozi and its proprietors. 
Before long, he spotted some users with avatars he recognized, members of the hang-up team that he'd become familiar with from previous research. He decided he knew enough about these guys to pose as a potential buyer and figure out what was going on through them. Inside the global hacker service economy, the 2007 CSO magazine article that broke the full story describes what happened next. Quote, in response to requests he posted, one of these hang-up team members emailed Jackson at an anonymous safemail.com account. The email told Jackson to log on to a specific IRC chat room with a specific name at a specific time. Jackson, using a machine configured to hide its location, did so. The room was virtually crowded. The channel moderator was offering preview accounts to 76 service such that the users could tour the site. Jackson asked if he could take a test run too. A few derided Jackson for his ignorance and in so many words told him to go away." End quote. This and Jackson's subsequent attempts at identifying the Gozi sellers failed, but he had another plan. After navigating the dark web, Don Jackson reached out to a colleague who'd long been investigating the hang-up team and owned logging credentials to 76 service. Even with all he knew already, he couldn't have anticipated what he was about to see. Like Dorothy opening the door to the magical, colorful land of Oz, Jackson peered behind the curtain of what at first seemed to be an ordinary malware to find an entire software service, befit with subscription plans, user-friendly features, and an easy-to-navigate interface that tracks cybercrime victims like stocks on a brokerage app. This was the vision of Nikita Kuzmin. Malware sold as a legitimate business operation. Corpse sold his malware like a product. Nikita sold his as a service. Once Gozi was finished infecting a new machine, you'll recall, the first thing it did was wait. Like a sleeper agent, it would only perk up when a user visited a site that required them to input sensitive data. So each infected machine in the world was like a seed. It might get rain, growing big and tall and bearing fruit, or it might not get any rain at all, ending up short and limp. Nikita's team planted those seeds in computers around the world, but didn't harvest them personally. Instead, they sold them to other cybercriminals to harvest. You couldn't know which seeds would bear fruit, but certain seeds were more likely to than others. A newly infected machine was worth more than one which had already been included in some other hacker's subscription package before. Users could pay a premium for new seeds or try to scrap whatever they could off the old ones at a bargain price. Savvy investors might buy a suite of infected machines, some new and some old, to balance their risk. 76 service customers didn't own their seeds, though. 
subscription plans lasted 30 days to align with typical monthly billing cycles, the window of time in which a target would likely visit the bank online. If your seed didn't yield bank information or only returned less valuable social media or login data, there was always another cycle coming up. If your seed did bear fruit, names, birthdays, social security numbers, card numbers, the stolen information would upload straight to your account. From there, you could use it for fraud or pawn it off on the black market, up to you. 76 service took nothing off the top. Like Corpse, Nikita and his crew sold the promise of high returns in exchange for steady income. They were separated by one or two degrees from any crime that might be carried out using their malware and didn't have to do the work of carrying out attacks themselves. This freed up their time to work on the more business-oriented aspects of their service, like user experience and design. And 76 service didn't just act like a proper business app, it looked like one too. It had a slick interface with a shiny logo and a color palette of blues and purples. After logging in, users were presented with a panel of project management tools where they could search, filter by category, purchase new infected machines, and check on the status of their currently active infections. Through a network of freelance hackers for hire, Nikita regularly implemented anti-security updates for Gozi and offered a suite of secondary services to his customers at extra cost. It was, all in all, just like any other internet business. Earlier in this episode, we quoted Don Jackson, who said of Nikita Kuzmin that, quote, despite his young age, he was trusted, respected for his practical technical skills and coding talents, and also known for his enthusiasm for the idea that internet fraud, especially against Western targets, was a legitimate profession." End quote. Nikita didn't just believe that hacking could be a profession, he turned it into a profession. 76 service was the culmination of his beliefs. It was an original, well-executed business that met a market demand. And it made him rich. According to the FBI, a teenage Nikita Kuzmin made a quarter million dollars that year. But the glory days of 76 service were numbered. Don Jackson had contacted the FBI, who partnered with Russian authorities to investigate. Jackson published a technical report and was interviewed for the long-form expose largely responsible for the research that went into today's episode. Antivirus vendors added Gozi's signature to their databases. In collaboration with internet service providers, 76 service began to be cordoned off and by mid-March of 2007, only a year or so after the service began, it was effectively closed down. A bum rush began as 76 customers hurried to use their stolen data before their accounts disappeared. Jackson claims that in just those few spring days, hundreds of bank accounts were juiced up to tens of thousands of dollars at a time. 
This appeared to be the end of 76 service and Nikita Kuzmin. But it was not. Nikita had a new idea. A new, bigger, better business that make the first one seem small in comparison. In our next episode, the second and final installment of this miniseries on the Gozi malware, we'll hear about Nikita's plan to modernize Gozi and how his new business fared in the competition against a new generation of banking Trojans, most notably Zeus, the 800-pound gorilla of the financial malware scene of its time. All that and more next time on Malicious Life. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. In our previous episode, we talked about spyware, which is sold or offered as a service by commercial companies and used by private consumers mainly as stalkerware, a tool for tracking and sometimes harassing romantic partners. Over on Twitter, I asked you for your opinions on this issue. Should spyware be outlawed for private consumers? Well, the results of our poll were very conclusive and, frankly, a bit surprising. Only 10% of those who answered the poll thought that spyware should be outright outlawed, and another 21% said that, at minimum, it should be highly regulated. Most of you, roughly 69%, think that spyware should be allowed to be sold with no or, at best, minimal regulation. I asked you for the reasoning behind your votes, and here are some of the replies I got. I, Dizzy Pirate, from India, if I'm not mistaken, wrote, quote, Due to its presence in the wild, some of us can actually study them and find an anti for it. Knowledge and precaution is the key against their usage for malicious intent, end quote. Six Stone Spacefly wrote, quote, I think it falls into the same category as encryption and firearms. They are tools that can be used for good or evil, depending on who is using them. End quote. Jeff from Texas had a different reasoning. He said, quote, I honestly think it's too late to do anything. In this day and age, the code is out there, and with the internet, it's open borders. End quote. And lastly, representing the minority view, Dave from Florida, who goes by the glorious handle of at Mystery Goat, wrote, quote, When I think of spyware, I usually think about the ad companies spying on our spending habits. Honestly, though, whether a guilted lover or ad company, I believe it to be a huge invasion of privacy. No one has the right to see the amount of private information you get from spyware. End quote. Thanks to all those who voted and tweeted me their answers. And this week's question, in the spirit of the current episode, is what made you take your first steps in cybersecurity or the technology industry in general? For me, it was definitely following in my father's footsteps. 
He's the kind of guy who can take apart a TV set, find a faulty capacitor and solder a new one, and make it seem as if it's the most natural and easiest thing in the world. I became an electronics engineer mainly because I wanted to become that guy. It took me some time to realize that I can't solder a capacitor properly if my life depended on it, but it turned out that software was right up my alley with much less solder burns. Now, how I became a podcaster of all things, well, that's a completely different story for some other time. So what made you take your first steps in cybersecurity or high-tech in general? Tell us your stories on Twitter at at ranlevy, that's at R-A-N-L-E-V-I, or at malicious.life, or via email at ran at ranlevy.com. As always, our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. dot com bye bye oh my god ck music 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 music